This episode of Live from CapTime's IdeaFest is sponsored by Exact Sciences. Learn more about Exact Sciences' mission to beat cancer through early detection at exactsciences.com. Hello, and welcome to Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. I'm Eric Lawrenson. Over the course of the coming weeks, we're going to be bringing you recordings from the second annual Cap Times Idea Fest, a two day event on the University of Wisconsin Madison campus full of smart conversations about politics, community, and culture. On this episode, what's the next step to fix juvenile justice in Wisconsin? Stories of mismanagement, abuse, and neglect at the Lincoln Hills Juvenile Detention Facility in Irma, Wisconsin, have raised big questions about our state's criminal justice system for youth. At the Ideas Fest, Cap Times news editor Jason Joyce led a panel discussion about juvenile justice in Wisconsin that touched on youth incarceration, restorative justice, and how the topic is handled as a political issue. The panel featured Everett Mitchell, a Dane County Circuit Court judge. Like we focused a lot on adult incarceration, recidivism, but we haven't put that same spotlight on juvenile issues. Beth Hubner, a professor at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. It's not just going to one facility, it's going to multiple facilities in and out. You just become a number. Charlene Moore, the co-founder and director of the Milwaukee Youth Development Program, Urban Underground. I don't want us to forget that these are children. Sometimes when I get them, I have to figure out how to undo all of that trauma that was done to them. And David Bowen, a Democrat representing Milwaukee in the state assembly. There is no safer policy than restorative justice, than community connected alternative ways of uh, working with young people that end up in these situations. All right, I'll let Jason take things from here. I hope you enjoy the talk. Um, so just to get started here, I guess the, the broad question kind of concerns our, our topic, which is, um, you know, how, uh, what, what's the next step to fixing juvenile justice, which, of course, assumes that the juvenile justice system is broken. Um, and I guess first I'd like to address this question to Judge Mitchell. Um, is it broken? And in, in what way uh, do we know that the juvenile justice system in the state is broken? So uh, I... I've been a judge for about over two years. Can everybody hear me? And I will say that, uh, hands down, that the juvenile justice system is broken in a number of ways. And, uh, and first, let me go on the record. I know I have one question <clears throat> that, I, that I need to that I'll answer on a lot of these things. But one, uh, you know, I was quoted, I've been quoted as being the only judge that deals with juveniles and I release them and so that they are in the streets and still in cars which is unequivocally not true, and I've never said anything publicly or privately about uh, car thefts not being serious and that juveniles should, uh, people should just pay their insurance when they, uh, as a result of stealing cars, I think is very serious. 
But but it but the fact that like misinformation about the juvenile justice system has been placed out there related to these our young people really underscores why I think our juvenile justice system is broken. And it's broken in a number of ways. One, in Dane County, we don't have enough group homes or treatment foster homes to be able to deal with our children. And so when when the child doesn't have a home, doesn't have a mother, father, all the normative things that we think are important to keep the children safe and secure, and we think we're going to place them somewhere, the only default is Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake. And we've seen, we've seen, if you've been somewhat conscious of the media, you have seen the stuff that has happened to these children at Lincoln Hills. And I will tell you that majority of this stuff is so true that they have, re they have abused restrictive housing. They don't even call it solitary and confinement. They give it a new name and call it restrictive housing. When the reality is, it's solitary confinement. And they use solitary confinement for weeks at a time. Uh, I've had juveniles with severe mental health issues not be able to get the services they need because at Lincoln Hills, the juvenile that we send up there indicating that they have mental health needs, they still, they say that the juvenile then has to contact them and tell them that they want a therapist or they want their medication rather than them just being given the treatment that they need when we send them up there. They, dis, they use, they discontinue groups for the young people when they are there to get the help that they need. They will take away groups. They won't let them finish the groups. And, and this is the place that is supposed to help rehabilitate these young people so that they don't come back into the community worse. But now they're being re-traumatized, re-victimized, abused even further. And then eventually they come back into the community and then they ask us, what, do you, what, what else can we do for them? And so I think it's broken because we, we as a system have had our children who are the most traumatized within the child welfare system. Do, are many of you familiar with the child welfare system? So the child welfare system is called CHIPS, Children in Need of Protection Services. It's mainly where children are removed from their parental care for abuse and neglect. And the CHIPS system is where a lot of these children start. They start in an abused, neglected system and that's where they start getting moved around. And what I'm seeing from my position is that they start in the child welfare system, they are traumatized there, and then they're further traumatized when they get to the juvenile uh, justice system. And that is the pipeline that leads them to adult incarceration. So at about the age of 15 and 16, running from the police now becomes a felony. And that felony then is charged uh, to them as an adult offense. And then at 16 years old, now they have a felony offense. And that is a system that child welfare to juvenile delinquency to adult prison pipeline is a pipeline that is operating ferociously here, both in Dane County and I'm sure in Milwaukee and throughout the state. So yes, it is broken. Uh, one question about Lincoln Hills. What age are the youngest um, inmates at Lincoln Hills or, or have there been as far as you know? Usually it's about 12 or 13. Oh, every state varies, so I'm not exactly sure. Wisconsin, but it's usually quite young. Yeah, we, the youngest I've seen, we've sent to Lincoln Hills is 13 years old. Uh, so, and Lincoln Hills, I, I want you to understand, Lincoln Hills is a prison. It's not a day camp. It has barbed wires, multiple barbed wires. It has locked facilities, locked doors, guards, all the things that you think of a prison, that's what it is. And I think 13 years old is about the youngest that I have seen sent up to, to Lincoln Hills. We try, we're supposed to try other things before that, but that is the youngest age. 
it depends on the, the numbers that come out of Milwaukee, but you know, at least 250, 260 youth are at Lincoln Hills. The majority of them, as I said, you know, probably come out of Milwaukee. Uh, we, as in Dane County, we don't send as many to Lincoln Hills as other parts of the state. Dr. Hubner, are these issues uh, that Judge Mitchell was just talking about, this sort of pipeline from the child welfare system into juvenile incarceration, subsequently onto adult incarceration, is this a nationwide problem? It absolutely is a nationwide problem. And I think that's what we need to look at this issue is a continuum. It's not just one system. So is a juvenile justice um, system broken? Definitely, there are ways that we can reform it. But what if we reform just the juvenile justice system and not the other parts, then we're back at square one. So absolutely, the, the children that end up in places like Lincoln Hills, usually from impoverished neighborhoods, haven't had the same access to schools, um, support from the community and things like that. So we do see this transition from child welfare um, to Lincoln Hills and, and places like that. So it's this, I always call it like a cumulative disadvantage. It's not just going to one facility, it's going to multiple facilities in and out. You just become a number. And like you said, it's very similar to adult corrections. Now there are other models um, in other states that aren't so prison-like, um, and that's something I can talk about as well. Great. Um, so Judge Mitchell, when uh, kids come before you, um, can you give us a little bit of a breakdown of sort of what they're doing, what their offenses are, and I guess how frequently it is that, that certain individuals you are seeing? Uh, what I think most, most of our community, especially in Dane County, had, needs to understand is that by the time they get to me, they are the highest need children. Right, we have, I mean, Dane County, this is Dane County, so you have restorative justice programs, you're gonna have different programs that are gonna try their best to keep the kids out of the system. So that, those kids are weeded out through different school-based programs, work here, do that community service. So by the time they get to me, they are, they are the ones in the community that are not responding uh, because they have an, a, a higher level of treatment needs than I think uh, most programs could, could capture. You know, one of my kids has been in this, most of these children have been in the system for multiple years. One of my kids who I call my high roller kid have been in, have been in the system since the age of five years old. So from the age of five to the age of 15 years old, this young man had been moved from home to home 39 times, 39 times. And every time that they moved him, he, 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 he found himself being stuck because he didn't have a place to go. Now, I know this is not normal to most people, but most of my kids, when they show up to court, they have nobody. And I want y'all to understand what that means. I mean nobody. There is no mama, there's no daddy, there's no extended family, there's no great mama, no aunties, no, nobody who is there for these kids. And in fact, one time I had one kid, I was trying to bring him back from Lincoln Hills because he was getting abused at Lincoln Hills but his mother wouldn't show up to court so I could transfer his custody back to his mother and bring him home. So I kept having to bring him back month after month and make the sheriff go get the mother to come to court so I could transfer him back to his mother's house, but she refused to show up to court. She refused to be able to do that. And these are the young people that are coming before me. They don't, they're homeless, our young girls are being trafficked, they're couch surfing, they're being abused by adults who've taken advantage of them, the fact that they have low IQs, high trauma needs, they've been abused from one system to the next, 
and, and, and even the, the educational system has, has, has neglected them. So one of the things that I see the, when, that, that hurt me the most was that, you know, I believe in education. I think education is, has to be one of the highest ideals that we can offer in our country. I learned, would y'all agree with that? Education is kind of high up there, right? <laughs> I learned that for over two decades, the majority of the black and brown court-ordered children who have special education needs, we call them IEPs, individual education plans, that they're set up, that the school district for over 20 years have been placing these children in an hour to an hour and a half school days. An hour to an hour and a half school days for over 20 years. And then graduating them. Graduating them. You should ask yourself the question, how are all these kids having time to steal cars? Right? It's only because they only are in school for an hour and a half a day, which is, in fact, a violation of the federal law. Right? And I only learned that because my kids were saying, Judge, I want to go to school. And I'm like, why can't you go to school? They're like, they won't let me. I was like, who? And this is America, right? <clears throat> this is America, right? They don't deny you education. They let you go to school, come to find out the administrators didn't want them in the buildings. So they were doing everything they could to keep them out of the schools. Uh, and, and, and to the degree in which I had to call administrators in and put them under subpoena and record and under oath to get their testimony of why they wouldn't put, let these kids go back into school. It was one of the most horrific things I had ever learned. And, and so we, we will be quick to put the kids on trial for what they're not doing. But nobody puts the other systems on trial for what they have not given these children for over the last 20 years. And what saddened me was that I shouldn't be the first judge to say this ain't right. This is 2018. And these children are still being denied the fundamental rights that they need in order for their lives to be changed. And I call them children because I have to see them as children in order to advocate for them in a manner that's consistent with what I think our society is supposed to give them. These are somebody's babies. And these babies have been denied the things that they need on a consistent basis. I'll give you this last story and I'll let this my wonderful <laughs> professor talk. One of my babies, she's a high-frequent kid, and she came, she created a crime. Listen to this. She created a small crime just so she could come get some food. She came to court and she was hungry because she'd been sleeping on couch after couch after couch because her family is homeless and they don't have a place to live. And so I'm going into my cat, into my lunch box to bring salads and give a gift card so she can have food to eat. So she could have a place to sleep. She wanted to be in detention. So I had to really accept this reality that sometimes we think jail is like, oh, my God, I don't want to go to jail. Take, don't take my freedom. But the reality is jail is better, is better for some of them than the hell of their real life. At least they know where they can sleep that's going to be safe for the night. Dr. Hubner, you, you sort of alluded to this, this continuum that exists in Wisconsin and many other states. Um, is, can you give us an example of a state or a county or a city or even a particular judicial jurisdiction that is doing things differently and how and whether that's functional or working? Okay. Um, 
Absolutely. So the juvenile incarceration rate has declined over the last 10 years. So there is some good news. We are putting more, less and less kids in juvenile facilities, mostly because they don't work, right? As you can imagine, the mark of a criminal record stays with you for the rest of your life, and putting you in institution changes you. Um, I know this is everyone's nodding, but this isn't always common knowledge to people, right? Going in an institution changes the way you think, particularly when you're 12 to 15, even up to 24 to 30, your brain is still changing. So, uh, like I said, a lot of states have um, declined in their use of juvenile incarceration, and Wisconsin has done that, but many other states have made larger strides. Um, and this is not just a new phenomena. Actually, in Massachusetts in the 80s or late 70s, they got rid of juvenile facilities altogether. But then we had the crime wave of the 80s and 90s and cocaine, and we thought there were going to be super predator kids, which there are not super predator kids, but we thought there were going to be. We built up institutions again, so we're seeing that trend go back down. So there are a few people, perhaps, that should be in institutions. I'm not going to say that that isn't the case, but it's a very, very, very small group of people, and so if you're going to put someone in an institution because they're a threat to themselves or a threat to somebody else, those are kind of the factors, um, then it's best to keep them in a small congregate facility. So what that means is if you think in your mind like a cabin, right, think about what would make you feel warm and happy and, and like at home. Those sort of facilities are best, and that's what we do in Missouri. It's called the Missouri model is we have decentralized small cabins where people work as teams, as peers support um, to deal with challenges. It's that restorative model in that we give children power over their own lives. And some, most of these kids have never had any power in their life, never had any voice. Um, I interview a lot of these kids and no one's ever listened to them. So we put them in small groups and help them support each other. If you think of something like AA, it's that same sort of model. Like we can help each other we're all in the same boat. Um, so that's key. It's also key, I don't like for any sort of institution for us just to have one or two, mm -hmm. right? Not good. Because um, then we can't classify people and things like that. So it's also important to have these small little cottages or facilities all around the state. We don't want to take kids away from their families if we don't have to. Um, oftentimes mom and dad may be mad, families might be dysfunctional, but we do find that they come around. So sometimes people are mad for a little while, they don't want to visit their kid, but eventually they come around. Or other grandma comes, or Aunt June comes, or something like that. So we want to have small facilities that are restorative, peer-based, so kids can learn the skills. No one's ever taught them the skills to be, to have agency, to have growth, um, and then keeping people by family is key. So there are ways to do this, but I would also advocate, advocate that we need to reduce the number of facilities overall. There's, like I said, there's very few kids that need to be in these sort of facilities. I grew up um, in uh, the Twin Cities. Do you have a, uh, it, just down the road from our house actually was a, it was called the Hennepin County Boys Home or Boys School. They had a farm. Those kids took care of horses and, and you know, livestock and lived in the sorts of cottages you're describing. Now, this is not a new concept. This was going on in the 70s. Um, is, do we have a grasp for the reason why that has not, you know, propagated throughout the country or why it's maybe even gone away? Is it funding? Um, it's funding, um, yeah, like facilities like that and staffing are hard to keep up. But I also, like I mentioned, with the crack cocaine epidemic, you know, we've seen the same thing with opioids. People get really fearful. I always caution people to think, um, to separate who we're mad at versus who we're scared of, right? 
I went really, really mad. I cannot believe that kid stole my car again. Do you know how much I like my car and how annoying it is to get stolen? Okay, you're mad at them. It's not new to me to mean that we need to be in this facility. So I think, um, and, and part of it's just kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> our panelists are here, mm-hmm. uh, a strong reaction to children that are often very difficult to deal with. So I think it's money, just resources, a lot of different factors. And, and you know, you know, and, and that's why I would stress this over and again, as in Dane County, we have lost all of our group homes. So that means that there is literally no places in, this, in our context, in our special environment, where we can have small, intimate areas for young people to go. And we used to have a plethora of these places uh, in Dane County as a resource that we could rely on, but they're all gone. And so you literally, even for the ones that we don't want to send to a higher level incarceration, we just want them to get their trauma needs met, and we end up removing them completely away from their families, and in some cases, we have to send kids all the way down to Tennessee. I want you to think about that, to Tennessee, in order for these kids to even have an opportunity to get a trauma-informed lens to address the underlying uh, pain and hurt that has infected, infected most of their lives. I mean, and the idea that we are trying to do this without any kind of family involvement to us, sickens uh, the decisions that we have to make, especially as a judge. Like it, it is nothing more saddening to think about the idea that this young person who has been sexually abused, has been physically abused, been neglected, has had literally no support in their entire life. They have been alone, they've been abused, and now we're talking about taking you away from anything familiar and sending you way out of state where there will be no one who will contact you that you're familiar with. To me, that is the greatest injustice that, that happens related to our stuff. But I know we got yeah. No, let's welcome um, um, Ms. Moore. For those of us who don't know, um, what is restorative justice and what form uh, does that take in Milwaukee? How are you involved in that? Uh, restorative justice is, I think it's just that, right? To restore justice and um, provide opportunities for our young people to understand what they've done um, when they've done something wrong, right? Um, if you all remember, you know, growing up, thinking of, think about your childhood, right? And think about, you know, when you did something wrong and how uh, you had people in your life that was able to correct you. And sometimes they didn't do it the right way. Some of us got some whoopings, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but, you know, how people did it in the right way where we understood that what we did wasn't the right thing. And we were able to learn from that, Right. And this is the same sort of concept that we're talking about with young people that may not inherently have loving people in their life that's able to correct them, that's able to redirect some of their negative behavior um, because they might have been lacking in particular areas or they might, um, their, their life may have been intertwined in um, things that, have not, that may not be healthy. And so restorative justice is an opportunity for us to um, use correction in a way that a young person can learn from. Um, We have a restorative justice program here in Madison, which um, the Cap Times has reported on um, pretty recently. Um, Are there any efforts, Representative Bone, maybe you could speak to this. Are there any efforts to um, 
spread that out around the state? Are, are there is does the state uh, legislature uh, can they play a role in uh, sort of making sure that there's more support for those kinds of programs? I think what's interesting about your question, um, you know, now being in the state assembly and dealing with the political reality uh, beyond where. Uh, the efforts that we have demand where we want the system to go and what we want the system to actually do to repair the harm that it has actually done to young people. And uh, one of the reasons my heart is really heavy, I spoke at St. Mark's Church today to the 4th District uh, AME Church. They, they gather as a district, so about 500 individuals from all over the Midwest uh, was in my district this morning. Um, and I told them, same Thing I'll tell you, my heart is heavy this morning because of witnessing the testimony of Dr. Ford uh, in front of the U.S. Senate committee and uh, also witnessing uh, uh, Mr. Kavanaugh and his anger uh, to that same committee. And I think it's really important for us as a system, us as a government, to recognize when people are in vulnerable positions and they experience something and nobody believes them. Mm -hmm. Nobody can understand the treatment that they have been enduring and they want out of it. They want the freedom out of that moment, out of that treatment. And it really is on us to recognize and to uh, really listen and take a back seat towards just, not just the talking points that we always have because we are on two different Ideological, ideological sides, but um, for us to recognize what is it that we want to accomplish and where are we right now. Um, the debacle that has happened in our youth juvenile justice system, um, the treatment that has happened at Lincoln Hills, um, the lack of good outcomes that we have not been able to achieve in the current system that we have, but we continue to do the same thing. Uh, we continue to support a system uh, that is so rigid uh, that only counts uh, uh, the effort to turn around the lives of young people by putting them in these very prison-like settings. Uh, and uh, we're not achieving those outcomes. So if we're able to get outside that box, if the, if the government, if the state of Wisconsin, if our counties are willing to think outside of that box to say, what is a better way to do this? to get young people to actually change their behaviors, because I think that's the goal that we should have. Um, it, that means that we are uh, definitely doing things outside of what we've done in, in previous, uh, previous efforts. So all, I said all that to say, this last legislative session, um, while it wasn't as far as a step as I would have liked, it was a significant step different from what we've done in the past. And if we continue to go down this direction, it will push us to be able to institute restorative justice efforts um, that are unlike anything we've done before, um, but that can really touch the grassroots level um, and can provide better outcomes. And not just in a certain part of the state because all of the young people supposedly uh, that get in trouble come from that part of the state. They come from Milwaukee or they come from Racine or they come from Madison for different reasons. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, can we make sure that we have a process and a system that recognizes dignity 
all over the state of Wisconsin in all 72 counties. And I want to make sure that too, I, I want to follow up when he talks about these boxes that we find ourselves in. I, I, the biggest box is just this desire to incarcerate the super predators. I, I, I need to make sure y'all clearly understand the biggest box that we're fighting is just that, that methodology of just locking up those bodies. Uh, and I don't think juvenile justice has been given the same weight that we have talked about adult incarceration. Like we focused a lot on adult incarceration, recidivism, but we haven't put that same spotlight on juvenile issues, mainly because of the confidentiality issues that arises. And so they think that that is a shield. And so the practices that go, that go on behind the curtain are the kind of stuff that people like me are telling you about. I mean, you have wonderful researchers that can talk about the trends as they see them. I can tell you as I'm, as I'm looking at it, I'm just like, this is, this is abuse over and over and over again, because those of us in power are trying to figure out, all right, if we're not going to go toward ultimate incarceration, and if we're going to be a trauma-informed people and society, That's not right. just informed, but practicing it, right. when public safety and trauma collide, mm -hmm. public safety always wins, Yes, mm -hmm. right? And now we're, we're trying to say, all right, let's, let's figure out a way that we can say, okay, we know all of the different injustices that these children have endured. What can we do to stabilize their emotional, educational, mental stability within themselves so that they don't have to be a victim of these people who would take advantage of them? The, the most painful story that I have seen was one of my kids, he came to me at 12, by the age of 12, he had picked up 39 charges. Now somebody should ask me the question, how the hell you pick up 39 charges at age 12, right? Yes. Yeah. His mother's, his mama's boyfriend had taught him how to steal and had taken him from place to place to place to place to place to steal because he had told him they won't, they won't send you away, but, so, but you're going to go steal this. So when most kids are playing uh, Fortnite, Fortnite. Or, 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 you know, PlayStation or hanging out with their other friends, he was being taken yes. from one business to the next. Yeah. And by the time I had got him, there was no place this kid could be in Dane County mm. because he had just about robbed every place. Now, obviously, the question, what are you going to do with this kid? Because now what has been put inside of him is abnormal. Well, most kids don't know how to walk into a place and steal money out of a straight out of cash register. He has been directed to do so. Now, the, the, the dude was eventually prosecuted and sent to prison for what he did. But now you got this 13-year-old walking around here getting, trying to figure out how to go to middle school and be a normal kid. Yeah. Ms. Moore, I want to talk about uh, Urban Underground uh, because based on... Uh, everything I've read about the organization, which is not much, and it's over a very short period of time in preparation for this panel. Um, can you explain a little bit about your mission? Because it seems like um, your organization is working on some of the things that Judge Mitchell was just explaining. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Um, thank you for sharing that, that story. It, 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 you know, I, I don't want us to forget that these are children at the end of the day, these are, these are children. And you know, sometimes when I get them, I have to figure out how to undo all of that trauma that was done to them. 
Um, so Urban Underground is a youth leadership organization. We work directly with high school age young people. We started in 2000 um, on a bold premise that if we provide young people with the opportunities, that they can change the world. And so many of them have already done that. So many of them are already on the course for that. They just needed to be, to, to be told that you got this. They just needed to have a loving adult share with them that you may have, you may have been dealt this hand, you may have been dealt this bad hand, but I'm gonna show you how to play with it. And for so many young people in the city of Milwaukee, that their circumstance and their conditions of dealing with poverty, of dealing with high unemployment, their parents might, are not working, They're, they may have um, somebody, their father may be locked up. It's these stories that were told over and over and over again. They're in these failing school systems because every year, guess what? Oh, we don't have enough money for education, but we can sure enough put it into other areas such as policing and such as incarcerating people, right? They're constantly told that they're not enough, right? And so when we get these young people, we say, you know what? You are enough and let us teach you how to number one, look within, Look within yourself to say, all right, these are some of the things that I need to work on. These are the areas in my life that need to change. And then look outward. How can I now change my community? How can I now change the conditions I'm in, that I'm in? How can I now help someone else? And with that premise, these young people have been able to look at different issues. We focus on four core areas, health education, criminal justice, and public safety. And these young people have been able to say, I'm passionate about education, or I'm passionate about the school to prison pipeline, or help the healthcare that I'm getting. I'm passionate about housing. Whatever issue it is, we address those issues and we create projects centered around how do you change the circumstances that you're in. So that's just a little snippet <laughs> about Urban Underground. We're on Facebook, we're online, urbanunderground.org. Check us out. But our young people have been doing some amazing work. And David is one of those young people that have been a product of having that sort of framework and then using it into his current field. Dr. Hubner, I'd like you to... I know that some of your research has been in gangs. And certainly we've seen you know, the definition of a gang in, in Madison, Dane County, Wisconsin, mm -hmm. runs the gamut. Sure. Um, and we've, at the Cap Times, we've reported on a number of neighborhood initiatives, you know, flag football leagues, just, just organizations of young men that are meant to try to divert them from gangs and, and all of those things. Um, are you aware of any research or, or any trends nationally that go to addressing that specific cause of problems with young people and leading into this uh, broken juvenile justice. Sure. I've spent a lot of time with um, gang members in St. Louis, which I'm assuming are the same as Madison and Milwaukee. But people join gangs for two reasons. One, they're pushed out into the street. Um, trauma. I, I don't think we can say trauma enough today. I don't think we, I, I can't appreciate the amount of trauma that kids experience in their own home. Um, so they're pushed out on the street. They're also drawn to the street because of excitement. So people often think of gang membership as abnormal. I would argue that it's an 
a normal response to the street and to behavior. So I think we need to change the paradigm. I think that's what you guys are doing right. Is like, how can we, you know, instead of just, you know, labeling people, so you can call them a negative peer group, you can call them a gang, you can call them whatever you want. But once you call them a gang, I think that changes our discussion. So I, I like to think about this as a normal response to behavior. And so absolutely, I think um, there's a lot of different programs that can be done with gang members, um, much like you were talking about today, some restorative measures, but also uh, addressing those reasons that people are leaving the home. So we talked a lot about money. Um, it costs about $30,000 a year to incarcerate a child. Think about what we could do with that money. Um, the earlier we go back, the better. Um, so one thing I always suggest is to provide trauma-informed um, care to youth as soon as possible, but to also provide wraparound services to the family. So oftentimes we talk about trauma with children, which is absolutely the case, but oftentimes um, families have trauma as well, and people simply do not have the skills to deal with their child's trauma or their own. So um, this, as I mentioned before, this doesn't go on one agency. It has to be um, a comprehensive model. But, I mean, gangs can be important, um, but it's also important to look at individuals and to, and to not label them, them too much um, as well. Representative Bowen, one of the our state is home to many divides, um, and one of the one of the divides that we um, we learn a lot about lately is uh, the urban rural divide. And so, in addressing legislation in your job, you know not only do you need to work across the aisle effectively, but but in some ways you need to communicate right with people who live in rural parts of the state about some of these issues that we're talking about right here. Um, are you finding that, that uh, folks are receptive? Do you, do you see room for hope um, and areas that you can work with folks to build a consensus and really move some of this legislation forward? Very good question. Um, this is Ideas Fest. Make some noise if you're happy to be at Ideas Fest. All right. This is my very first time at Ideas Fest. I've been a summer fest. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, been to a number of festivals, but uh, a festival around ideas. I think it's an awesome idea. Um, so I, l let me uh, backtrack here. Um, I made my way to the state assembly in uh, 2015, and after a four-way primary in 2014, um, I won with 54% of the vote. Um, and I'm coming from the county board where I've passed several pretty big pieces of legislation, increasing the pay of workers to a living wage, uh, focusing on ex uh, expanding transportation to young people uh, during the summer, uh, uh, during their summer job program, um, a number of different things. And then I get to the state. I'm bright eyed. I'm like happy to be there. Um, and uh, what's so funny is I, I bought a bottle of champagne, right? And I'm like, I'm going to open this bottle of champagne when I pass something big here, you know? And we're going to have a good time. We're going to toast. And that bottle of champagne is still in my desk. Um, because that first session, I, it was really hard to adjust to the most uh, divided um, where everything is based on power and control and the majority and the minority, um, rather than me having a direct conversation with you, sharing the facts and you nodding your head like, yep, David, 
you're right. Now let's change it. Um, things changed uh, when, I, when I went to Madison. And um, it definitely is, it's a different time altogether uh, in, in politics uh, right now um, with things being as um, polarizing as it is. Now, uh, as we had conversations on uh, Lincoln Hills, uh, I think the dynamic of how bad the situation was affected uh, the ability of my colleagues um, to be able to truly listen and uh, not to just hold the party line per se or uh, to uh, be, be stuck with um, being tough on crime per se, but it was it was it created a moment for me to connect and uh, Senator Wangard He is a member of the Senate uh, He's a Republican. He is a police officer um, And it comes from much a different background uh, than I do um, And even he was willing to listen uh, on the perspective that we could do this a lot better and, and what is funny is that um, public safety is our goal, right? Our, our goal is to protect the community and to make sure our community is, uh, is safe. Um, there is no safer policy uh, than restorative justice, than community-connected um, alternative ways of uh, uh, working with young people that end up in these situations. Um, and, and the facts will tell you that, the statistics will tell you that, um, and in that moment, I, was, I had the chance to get uh, folks on both sides of the aisle to see the light uh, in a way. And there also were different dynamics, too, because the local level uh, in the past counties, uh, when they asked for the chance to uh, be able to take care of young people in secure settings, uh, the state would say, cool, you pay for it. And then the counties were like, well, since you said we'll pay for it, no, well, we're, we're good, we're good. You keep paying for it. So then you get these different dynamics of uh, uh, where like kind of the, the goal changes. Literally the football field gets longer and it goes from 100 yards to 200 yards and the, uh, the field goal gets smaller. Um, and, and literally all of these dynamics are happening at the same time. Um, and I also need to thank uh, the advocates for pushing as hard as they did uh, for young people, uh, for their families, advocating that we could really see the, uh, the boldness in changing our system. And I have to thank uh, members of the media who were uh, continuously uh, pushing articles, talking about the, the perspective that young people were, were having, experiencing um, in our own uh, facilities. And uh, I think one of the things that as, as elected officials, we like ribbon cuttings, um, we like bill signings, um, and we all hate bad press. And when bad press is making us all look bad, because these young people aren't in the, uh, uh, in the control of just uh, certain individuals, they're held by the state. They're in the protection in the uh, hand of the state at that moment. Um, and we should be the last line of defense to get them back on the right track. Um, so luckily, things were happening that allowed me to have more progressive conversations um, where people were actually listening um, uh, rather than the same old, same old, yeah, we hear you, Representative Bowen, but we're still going to do what we want to do. Um, and 
that happened to some degree, and we, like I said, we would hope that we can really transform the system moving forward. Um, but uh, a small win uh, still is a small win. I know that we want to, um, you're looking to start with some questions. The only thing, I'm going to speak a little bit out of turn. I would Please. love for the first question to go to the young person in the front. I see her I, finishing up I, here. I know. And I would, love, <laughs> I would love for her to speak her question oh, great. for the first one. Because a lot of times we don't get to hear young people speak, right? And we don't create space for them to. So I would like to take this time for young young person to have her question answered. Are you interested in doing that? Please do. Yeah. So my name is Kajada, and I'm with the Simpson Street Free Press. So my question is, so schools around Madison have been starting to implement restorative justice and um, other support groups in schools for students, something that my school has started also. And but I've noticed that most of these practices begin in middle and high school. And I think like the judge was saying that sometimes trauma has already affected these students. And when, so sorry, I think that they should begin as soon as a child is filed into the public school system, a system that has now become a trap for them and the path to the school to prison pipeline. And so how can we start using these practices at an early age so that we can ensure that these students are safe? You have the answer, right? So you asked a question that there is a simple solution to. And how do you get people to implement those solutions? You get your people together, right? So you start, because it's gonna start with you. That's one thing that I tell all my young people. If there's something that you need to solve, all right, let's get our people together. Let's figure out how to get this done. And you figure out, you pull your friends together, and it may be, who do we need to target? Is it the school board? Is it legislation that is, you know, it, it policy within the school board to say, you know what? We need to have restorative justice practices starting in elementary school. There's no reason why something like, like that cannot happen, right? But it's going to start with you. You got it. I have, a, I have a question here from the audience that sort of takes this a step further. Um, I'm a new student who's just started college and I want to go into this field of work to help kids. Uh, what do you suggest I and others do uh, so that we can make the most change? Any, any suggestions about fields of study, uh, careers that are out there that, that need people, need good people? <laughs> And, and my thing would be just, so you said internships, and if mm -hmm. there aren't, aren't any internships available for your field of study, I would volunteer. Absolutely. What, there are lots of different organizations here in Madison that are doing some amazing work. Um, research them. Figure out what you want to start with. It may not be the first organization or the second organization or the third organization, but take your time and um, get involved in those organizations so that you can figure out, ah, I like this one. And I think this is going to help direct me on the path um, of my career. So just volunteer. We are right next door to the Red Gym, which houses the Mortgage Center. Um, 
here at the UW, which is an exceptional resource. And uh, I just interviewed the director of the Badger Volunteers Program, which has 750 student volunteers that they put out into the community every semester, averaging like one to four hours a week of work. And, and uh, that guy's name is Ruben, and he will... Um, He'd be glad to talk to you. <laughs> Believe me, he would be very glad to talk to you. If I could add one more, um, or a few, uh, really quickly. Uh, you can intern for State Representative David Bowen's <laughs> office <laughs> in Madison. <laughs> Email rep.bowen at legis.wi.gov. Or I'll just give you a card afterwards. But would, would love to have your help. Um, I think there's also a huge opportunity to actually volunteer in some of our uh, locations in the system, uh, whether they be uh, actually traveling to some of the incarceration centers um, or the prevention programs that do a lot of work on the front end uh, rather than waiting for the back end as well. Um, a lot of opportunity for you to uh, engage young people and to uh, really get a sense of what it is that they're, that they're going through and what they're dealing with. Uh, so there are a number of questions about the closure, the impending closure of Lincoln Hills. We know that it will be closed, and we know that the state will be moving to a model of sort of regional facilities. Do we know anything more about that? Do we know how those decisions are going to be made? And is there, again, is there any room for hope that things will improve just by that act alone? Um. So the act that you're talking about is called Act 185. Um, and we were very excited. We were in Milwaukee, um, the other organization that, or coalition um, that I support is called Youth Justice Milwaukee. And we pushed, you know, we, we talked to electeds, we had impacted families and young people um, talk to the community. There was a lot of work uh, that we put in in order to get this far. And it still didn't have everything that we wanted, because the last thing that we wanted to do was widen the net, right? The last thing we wanted to do was create these multiple regional centers across the state that housed even more young people. Uh, so it was important for us that, yes, even though this was a small win for us, and it um, slated the closure of Lincoln Hills and Copper Lakes by January of 2021, there's a lot of work that needs to go in in a very short period of time. And we're still working with, um, for Milwaukee, we're still working with our county. They have different working groups that are saying how, how they should look. Uh, and one of the things that, um, that the Department of Corrections, uh, their first three, um, they had these info gathering sessions and their first three info gathering sessions, not, not one of them started off in Milwaukee. And Milwaukee houses about 60% of the young people that um, that are housed in Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake. And it was really um, kind of a slap in the face for us that we weren't on the top of the list, right? Um, and it just goes to show you that, you know, community isn't really at the forefront. It isn't really at the center. And so we have to push. So when I say, you know, you have to, you know, when you see something that's going wrong and, you know, don't, don't look for other people to, to jump in, you have to jump in. And we said, okay, well, you know what, if you're not going to, um, host a session, you know what, don't worry about it. We'll host it for you. You know, we'll, we'll set up the date, we'll invite the people, we'll provide the food, and you'll come do your presentation, but the community will get an opportunity to be able to share and be able to provide their input. 
I want you all to understand that a lot of this work is centered around community. Bricks and mortar is not, we cannot build our way out of this mess that we're in right now. There's no amount of bars that we can build that is going to change the circumstances and the situations our communities are in. We cannot build our way out of this. We have to look at those out-of-the-box opportunities where we're talking about restorative justice practices. We're talking about how can we keep children in their home? How can we infuse wraparound services and quality services, infuse them in these families that is going to, again, support these young people from looking at um, and looking at changed behavior. We have to do a lot better in saying, hmm, you know what? You all have more experience than I do. Let me bring you all to the table so that you can tell us what it is that we need to do. We typically call in community at the last minute. You know what? We've been meeting for months now. We, you know, we've come up with this plan. You know what? We're just calling you in so that we can share with you this plan so that you can tell us, you know what? Good job. Good job. We go ahead with the plan, right? Instead of saying, you know what? Community, we need you. You have all the information that we need in order to say, all right, this is the plan. This is what we need you need to do. We need you to tell us what it is that we need to do. And we need to start stop taking that um, approach where we have all the, uh, you know, all the other people at the table and then we don't have any people that are impacted or involved saying this is how we do it, right? Thank you. That's where we need to start. And we need to start looking at um, how do we empower our community, you know, give them... Um, the, the space, give them the room at the table to start sharing, this is how we want things done. This is how we want our children treated. And I think that we still have a long ways to go in regards to this legislation. We're not out of the woods yet. Um, there's lots of money involved, uh, money that may not get distributed equitably, you know, to the, to the right spaces, but those are the things that we're continuously fighting about. But the community has to be at the forefront. They have to be at the center of that. That's a great thought to end on. Everybody, please join me in thanking our panel. Thank you for listening to Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes or anywhere else you find podcasts. If you like it, please give us a rating or a review. We'd appreciate it. We're also releasing audio from the fest on some of our other podcasts here at the Cap Times. Shows like The Corner Table, The Mad Splainers, and Cap Times Talks. Be sure to give those a listen. I'm Eric Lawrenson, and thanks again for tuning in.